Raw Ag is your link to the food chain, and every episode will take you somewhere along that chain. From conception to consumption, you will hear from the cutting-edge players in Australian agriculture with industry news, unique views and presentations. We can all be better farmers, sustainable, regenerative and innovative. We can all be more informed and aware consumers. And Raw Ag is your next step in that direction. Brought to you by Ace Radio and Tamania Angus. I'm Kate Mead and today it is my honour to introduce you to host Tom Gubbins. This is episode 27 of the Raw Ag Podcast. My guest today is Lewis Frost. He is the Chief Operating Officer of Series Tags, the world's first direct-to-satellite smart ear tag and data platform for livestock. Welcome to the Raw Ag Podcast, Lewis. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so Lewis, you've um, you know got a fascinating story in ag, I think. Um, it's um, You came from... Um, a different sort of a sector to um, most of us, and um, I'd like you know you to tell that story. Whereabouts are you at the moment? I'm at home in Brisbane, down by the Bayside. Um, working out of my home office is predominantly where you'll find me, given the the lack of travel we all seem to do these days with COVID. Yeah, and so Lewis, um, you know, where did your life start out? So somewhere very different, and it always seems to surprise people when they ask me, you know, where my parents' station was from or, or what property I'm off. I'm actually was born and raised on a small island in the middle of the Coral Sea, a place called Magnetic Island. I, I'm pretty sure there wasn't a single cow on the place. Um, and it was pretty much a, a fishing community at, at the time, fishing and, and some, some tourism, some sort of eco-tourism. And my, my family were in the fishing business. My father was a boat builder and and fishermen as when I was a child there. And so, um, you know, fishing, I suppose, is primary production, isn't it? It's, um, it, that's the connection, the only connection you have. But um, tell us a bit, so you were sort of, uh, um, were you destined to become a fisherman? Yeah, so Dad was actually off a sheep and cropping uh, property that my granddad ran outside of Cowra, but they left the land to go fishing. They they moved to the island to start the fishing enterprise. And I always thought that is what it will, what was going to be my uh, career and, and the way I sort of went through life was, was joining the fleet and sort of apprenticing, I guess, um, under my dad. But it really, it certainly didn't end up that way in the end. Yeah, so... Um um, what happened? The, you know, there's a, a Billy, famous Billy Joel song about a, a fishing trawler off um, um, New, Newfoundland in America. That um, it, you know, that sort of uh, that song always comes to my mind when I hear your story. So, what happened? Um, you know, when you as you grew up with the, the your father's fishing fleet. <laughs> Yeah, so I guess, you know, things start started to change and I've gone back and spoke to my father about this to learn a little bit more, but things started to change for the fleet themselves and in its dynamics. You know, it was traditionally very small boats, uh, a very an artisanal fleet, you know, a small is beautiful approach. There were sort of San Pierre dories and, and other small craft, mostly built by a group of people on the island, um, sort of all coming together communally and, contributing to the building of, of an individual's boat and in time they all ended up with their own vessels um, we started to see larger boats you know more established 
um, commercial boats, more advanced technology being used to locate fish, find fish. Um, so more complex netting boats came into the equation. And slowly, you know, those new, uh, more high-tech competitors really did start to disrupt uh, the fishing enterprise that was based on the island. And over time, that pressure started to see fish stocks get compressed and compressed and, and lower and lower. And it was really only those large commercial boats that were able to compete. And pretty much all of the, the small fishermen uh, went out of business. And, you know, my father went into building and, and house building and, and rather than boat building and fishing. And that sort of uh, that dream of following in his footsteps certainly went up in smoke for me, that's for sure. So, you know, we're going to run a bit of a um, disruptive technology theme um, through through this um, chat, I suppose. But, um, you know, you've become... So what sort of education did you get to move into, you know, developing sensory devices? Yeah, well, I hadn't really thought too much about education up until that point, and... You know, it was pretty much the school of the bush on the island. There was a small school there and everyone sort of went with no uniform and no shoes on. And, you know, we did a lot of outdoor stuff and we mostly spent our afternoons crawling through the mangroves with spears, trying to catch crabs and stuff like that. We probably didn't think too much about it, but I ended up completing my secondary studies um, on the mainland and, and getting a boat backwards and forwards to the mainland every day and went on to do university there. And it was actually through a family friend that I was introduced to the world of aquaculture. So that there was a thing such as fish farming and you could actually go and still be involved in primary production aquatically um, without being a fisherman. So I got really interested in that and studied that. And, and that led me to do some further study in molecular genetics and genomics. Um, and from there, I started working actually in livestock because the jobs just weren't there in aquaculture. I came down uh, to Brisbane and started working in livestock and most of the IOT related skills I have have all been developed on the job and in industry really. Yeah so genomics is where we first came across you isn't it that's where we came across each other you were um, um, selling a, a genomic product? Yes yes that's right there and that would have been 13 years ago um, and, and I was working at the time with one of the first sort of commercially available gene marker tests in the industry through genetic solutions. And that, that was a really, really exciting time to be involved in that work. Um, I think it's easy to sort of look back at some of those early single gene marker tests and say that, you know, they needed to do more or they, they weren't up to where they needed to be. But um, at the time, I really think about those sort of pioneering women and men, both on the scientific end and within the industry, who engaged with, you know, what was the first wave of, of genomic selection. And over time, evolutions of those products, you know, became ingrained in, in today what we consider modern genetic evaluation. So yeah. I was really, really lucky to get involved in both the industry, the livestock industry, and in genomics at that sort of early stage of my career. Yeah, I suppose the early, um, you know, the early tests were... Um, they had some advantage, but you know, didn't quite have the commercial advantage as they do now. But they, we probably wouldn't quite be where we are if those early tests hadn't been commercialised and started creating a value proposition, would we? Yeah, I think you're right, and I think it forced a lot of people to ask some pretty challenging questions about 
how they would integrate that kind of technology either into their farming practice or into their models or, or other genetic tools and what were we going to do with them you know they weren't going to be the first and the last they were the first of many to come and i think they played a really crucial role in in sort of setting the wheels in motion for us to go down that road you know on a wider scale within industry so your early childhood experience of seeing you know the the corporate boats come in with sensory devices did that have any role in playing on your subconscious do you think to head off in the direction that you did yeah i think you know i think that's kind of when i found out about aquaculture through a a friend of the family dr rick braley um and and got a bit more involved in that front i thought wow you know this is a chance to to even kind of one-up them with technology and, (laughs) and even disrupt fishing to a certain extent by going and producing that same high quality specimen uh, on, in a land-based system, a recirculating aquaculture system. Um, so I was really excited about that. And that is actually what led me on to genetics and genomics was kind of, well, how far can we take this? You know, instead of just growing fish in a tank or a pond, you know, what if we were, what if we were breeding them and, and what could we do genetically and, and how would we select those lines and those, those, those breeding groups or individuals to be broodstock? To really accelerate um, the the progress we could make in in terrestrially farmed aquatic species, and did some some great work with um, Dr. Dean Jerry and Dr. Brad Evans at JCU at the time. And it was funny, you know, when I I mentioned I got that first job in livestock, um, it was without realizing that that livestock company actually had some some aquaculture customers who who I sort of inherited, and I started working on genetic selection in in salmon, uh, in pearl oysters off the coast of WA, in prawns. So kind of fortuitously, I didn't give up on the aquatic thing altogether. I sort of did 50-50 for the first five to seven uh, years of my working life. Yeah, okay. So, um, you know, dis- disruptive technology is is becoming is has recently become something that i suppose wasn't really discussed i mean the, the steam engine would have been disruptive technology um but it was they sort of were far and few between up until the last mm. 40 years really weren't they and now you know basically we're seeing disruptive technology come in all the time and and i don't know whether I don't, i'm not sure if i like the term really disruptive technology it's um it's sort of plays a negative on on the on the possibilities of it um at beef this year when i caught up with you at beef um at rocky um the the um technology um tent was just miles in front of what it was three years before i thought um things the technologies were starting to become really practical and sort of um uh, attractive um, and so we're in a pretty amazing phase at the moment in ag and um, and so what how do you describe what disruptive technology is yeah it's a really good question and you know I had the same realization at beef myself you know we went from just the the, the previous beef exhibition there was one or two agri-technology companies sprinkled around the place and this time there was sort of a whole pavilion full to overflowing and there was people who couldn't get in there and um, the ramp up rate was was amazing. I'm a little split on, like, as you say, the use of the term disruptive and the negative connotations. 
I'm a little split in two ways. I think there's so many technologies, products, services coming to the market that have the potential to be disruptive. I've really taken the approach of trying to be enhancing, trying to fit in. You know, if you're if you're so technologically advanced, you probably have the capability to put in a level of backwards compatibility into your technology. So you don't have to go in and smash down what's come before you. Maybe you can come in and offer a brand new alternative, but create links to the past. And about the only place where I would say, no, no, come in and smash it all apart is with business model innovation and disruptive business models, where I think they do have to come in um, and almost do a little bit of damage to make space for themselves. And, you know, Uber compared to traditional taxi cabs is, is a great example. But if you look at something like the technology I work with today at, at Sarah's Tag, you know, that could have come in and been highly disruptive or it could have come in the way it has and creating links both physically and through data in the cloud back to historical practices to, to become, an, you know, like you said, something that's enhancing not just having a, a negative impact for the sake of it. Yeah, and I suppose um, there are exceptions to that though as well. You know, like the classic is the is the digital camera, isn't it? You know, that Kodak actually developed it, sold the technology because they didn't think it was going to work and they didn't, they stopped producing film. Yeah, but, um, yeah. And that, that is the, I suppose that's the, the dis- d- disruptive technology we all go to to sort of... Um, um, you know, explain the potential of what may happen if we don't embrace something now. There is a bit of a fear of embracing things that won't work too, though. Um, I mean, I I particularly get myself into those issues sometimes where I might see something that uh, when we go down the path, we did it with IGF-1, um, which was, you know, a, a, um, a technique of working out, um, giving us a correlating trait to net feed intake years ago. And after collect, spending $150,000 on it, we realised it didn't work. You know, there's a few of those sort of things that occur too. Yeah, and, you know, that's... I think the the fear of diving in as the the pace of innovation is accelerating so dramatically and we're seeing, you know, like you said before, it was like one in every 10 years something disruptive came along. Now it's like once in every 10 weeks something disruptive comes along. I think people are getting, are getting less reserved about diving in and at least trying it. And I think more and more the disruptive technology we're seeing, they're making it easier for people to dip their toe. You don't have to you don't have to buy the farm just to, to try something new out now. You know, there's so, so many, and, and maybe this is coming through the business model innovation. Maybe people are uh, leveraging that kind of SaaS model that, you know, something as a service, you know, maybe they're providing this as a service or that as a service. And it's easy for people to get in, get out, flex up, flex down their level of adoption uh, within a new offering. And if they find it doesn't work for them, rightly or wrongly, they can they can move away from it again. They haven't, you know, invested in in physical assets um, just to be able to engage. Yeah. So um, we've uh, we've got a disruptive technology that's occurred in the beef industry, which is very very advantageous, but is breaking the cultural past, and that is genomics, what you were involved in early on. But now with single step, um, it's causing issues because single step still needs data um, but the temptation is just to take the test and not contribute the data 
um, mm-hmm. and get the result. But um, as a community of um, animal breeders, we actually need to still contribute data, and the systems at the moment don't aren't um, capable of really doing that properly. Um, and so it's that that is extremely disruptive, and and um, and we're. Where the industry is sort of wading through how to solve those issues at the moment, but you know potentially if we don't solve it, um, we could end up with a genomic test that doesn't have any contributing information or not enough. Yeah, and you know that's a really interesting one where the very the very thing that's causing the disruption that that genomic test people looking to it could uh, you know ultimately result in its own demise, right? If it's too successful and people don't generate any any phenotypic data or contribute any phenotypic data then it could lose lose validity so i think there's probably a key driver as a really strong motivation there for engagement with those those groups providing those genomic uh, testing diagnostic and, and prediction model services for them to somehow uh work on on making sure the circle is closed and and data is still being contributed it, it's a really tough one and i think it's going to be a little bit of a I think it could divide that populace a little bit. And, and I think maybe, Tom, that's what you're getting at. You know, yeah. there'll be people who are collecting and collecting and collecting data and seeing a limited return themselves, but delivering this great benefit to the rest of the industry. P- potentially, it could fracture some of those those user bases. And the people who go purely genomic will go off into one pool of data and, and the people who continue to contribute data go off and do another and, and that's probably not what uh, what anyone wants to see no, is, is not, the people to no. become divided over that. Yeah, so some of the ideas that solving this problem is to go to a national multi-breed analysis which actually starts buying phenotypes with revenue mm-hmm. that it creates from selling the result. Um, you know, so that, you know, if the scarcity of a particular piece of information starts to become damaging to um, the quality of the data, then the industry can start buying that data off the off the producers. Um, you know, so that, ideas like that. that. That's a really interesting model. And we're seeing more and more, you know, the rise of the marketplace. And you've only got to look on AWS and one of their fastest growing departments is the data exchange where people actually list available data sets for sale and, and, and resale licensing to to individuals and it's dynamically priced so it can kind of work like a stock market you know if heaps of people want imf data then that costs more um and if if no one's really interested in 200 day weights then maybe that's a little bit cheaper yeah you could almost run run that data marketplace in australia dynamically priced like you said based on precisely what the evaluation needs at the time that would be would be really interesting yeah well that's something that's being worked on and um Professor Robert Banks, who's been in on the podcast before, he's, you know, that's one of his um, uh, projects. So, you know, we'll watch this space. And I know Brian Kinghorn's had a bit of work, you know, contributed um, sort of um, academically to that. Um, So tell us a little bit more about what you're doing now with your series tags, because part of the reason I I really wanted you to come on was that the series tag um, at Beef was an absolute standout i thought yeah we've been it's i think it's one of those six-year overnight successes you know we turned up to beef and everyone was really shocked it was like it came out of nowhere but so much you know blood sweat and tears had gone in over the last half a decade 
um, to get it there. I've been really impressed with what the team's been able to deliver. And and we, we're lucky. We're a relatively small uh, physical team, but we leverage over sort of 100 people across our collaborating partners, you know, at CSIRO and, and Data61. And we've got a, an entire manufacturing team in Taiwan and a, a satellite uh, company, Global Star, that we work with in the US, um, who have all really... Uh, kicked the can and, and contributed so much, so much knowledge and know-how. Um, so I feel like we've kind of, you know, put together the, assembled the Avengers and, and got the best individuals we could <laughs> for each component. Um, but look, what we're doing in a nutshell is is the world's first um, and only, you know, purpose-built direct-to-satellite smart ear tag for livestock. So all you really need to know is it's a smart tag doing lots of wonderful things, recording lots of wonderful data, but it's the direct-to-satellite piece that's that's really revolutionary. There's just no need for any sort of infrastructure or antennas or towers. You don't need cellular reception or you don't have to get an account with someone. You apply the tag to an animal from anywhere on the surface of the earth um, and you'll have data in sort of under an hour into your sort of chosen software and data platform. So how have you managed to do that? So, And what sort of data? Sorry, what sort of data first? They were two fairly... <laughs> Let's go with what sort of data first, Lewis. Sorry about that. You're right, you're right. So there's a couple of things coming off the tag. There's, of course, GPS location data. Um, there's some data coming from an accelerometer, and that's really about an animal's behaviour and what it's doing and the intensity of its activity, you know, and what does normal look like. So that information is really useful, but probably what's more powerful is what is normal. And, and when, is the, when is the animal behaving abnormally? Because that's when I really want to know. I want uh, exception reporting. I don't need real-time data telling me everything's fine, everything's fine, everything's fine. So the tag works on a, on, a, on a programmed sort of transmission basis where it's reporting multiple times throughout the day. But whenever it detects an animal in distress, for whatever reason, it fires up and gives you that real-time uh, alerting capability. So the, the tag... Unlike traditional smart tags, and this sounds funny, we're talking about disruptive <laughs> yeah. technology. You know, I don't think smart tags are very traditional, but let's go with it. Unlike traditional smart tags, we don't send the raw data to some sort of cloud for processing. The, the tag is actually an edge computing node. It crunches all of the raw data. The tag becomes the most powerful computer in our system. All the raw data is processed on the animal, and we're only sending back that highly processed and encoded information, I guess. That's pretty incredible stuff. And so... It's really exciting. Yeah. And so what sort... Can I... You know, what sort of retail price are we talking about? There must be thousands. <laughs> I just can't imagine. I know it's not, but... Um. No, look, it's we sell them sort of in packs of 24 and packs of 10, and they'll be down around a couple of hundred Aussie um, a tag, depending on what sort of configuration you're buying them in. Um, but it's, I guess it really depends how you're using them. So again, you know, I used to, as you know, I, I spent some time working with other IoT wearable devices and yeah. actually with a platform that was the most successful and widely used wearable device in cattle. We had over 6 million of these smart collars out there on, on dairy cows around the world. Well, we've got some and on heifers, the same product. You've got some on heifers, yeah, and, and it's, yeah. It's, a lot of work's being done in beef now, which is great to see. Um, you know, with that device, I, th I think the, the model that it works in, the business model and the application model is that 
you kind of need to have a tag on every animal in a group of animals to derive value. Otherwise, you you have like a weak link or you're missing information. You, you're not getting data on those other untagged cows. We're seeing like there's work coming out of CQU and, and, and uh, Mark Trotter has done work and some of it's published in some MLA reports with this kind of sentinel monitoring approach. So particularly with what Mark calls uh, LBS, location, behaviour, state, uh, smart tags, which is, again is is the new sort of era of tag we're seeing come out. You can you can tag down to only five or ten percent of a population, and still access over fifty percent of sort of the value proposition or the ROI. And that's that's where we're seeing these technologies play a role: is okay. people tagging a smaller number of animals but receiving a, a larger, proportionally larger uh, return. So it sort of gives the, it gives you a mean statistical result from the whole herd perhaps is that sort of what you're saying yeah and and kind of sentinally you're monitoring for theft you know for mustering efficiency for pasture utilization even for there's some people looking at how they can capture data to apply for carbon credit units you know under existing and new methodologies and and they're nearly all being done on sentinel basis yeah so um you know we're having a bit of a look at uh tracking bulls um, yep. which is something that we're interested in. So you, you, your series tag on a bull, and, it, and if everything's normal, it, it, we don't need to know about it. But if something's abnormal, then it could notify us that, you know, an animal needs to be visited. Um, and that, yeah, exactly. and the commercial uh, upside of that is that, um, you know, you could, miss, you could save missing a, a cycle in your returning cows um, and you know, get more weight gain and uh, get more w- calf weight because um, you're getting cows in calf that otherwise might have missed a cycle or not gotten calf at all. Yeah, and and it's I think it's just you know particularly for people operating animals where they they're not in touch with them every day or they can't closely monitor them, they're getting some information where before they had none, and it's just up to them. It's like a sliding scale. How much do you want to spend? How much information do you want to get? And it's completely configurable by the end user. You can choose how far you want to push that. So we've got a customer who's going to tag 100% of the, the, the primo Wagyu bulls that are being leased out to other operations because they want to know exactly where those assets are and what they're doing. We've got a customer in Central Australia running a million acres with about 4,000 head, and they're only going to tag about 350 head evenly dispersed through those mobs again just to know where their assets are and what they're doing but on a completely different scale yeah no, that makes sense so whereas um uh, heat time pro that we use on our heifers uh the individual is um is very important for us each, each individual so because so we're collecting genotypic information for fertility trying to measure the first heat um, the heifers ever have so that because um, that's highly correlated to all of life cow fertility number of calves born and weaned um, and so we're collecting that to put into the genetic equation to um, basically give us more accuracy on fertility so we need every individual but the heat time pro does is a much more um, integrated product that does analysis and stuff and then so you're not necessarily doing you're leaving that up to the farmers a bit more aren't you as their interpret or not farmers but perhaps their service providers as to how they interpret the data is that right 
Yeah, I think you're right. It's we don't offer the the integration for a few different reasons. So when you when you're receiving your data from us, you're not receiving it into any Serres Tag app or Serres Tag software or website or anything like that. Basically, because we don't see any sort of market failure there. And Tom, you know, you must have tried so many of them, but I mean, there's thousands of herd management, performance recording, farm management, animal management. Um, software platforms out there and what we see around the world is there's just no one size fits all so yep. we're we're operating in in multiple countries around the world we would never be able to come up with a program that suited you that suited joe in montana that su- suited the guys in canada or uruguay or kenya or switzerland so we've kind of gone with the approach of just let everyone use the software they've got and we provide a really simple, rugged suite of, of what's called APIs, which is really just a socket that allows people to plug into our database yep. and based on their level of authorization, pull down that tag data. So then just in the, the same place, you've got your you know, births, deaths, marriages, treatments, weights, uh, uh, other information on those animals, you've now got tag data as well. So you can sort of combine data sets together and, and try and extract even more value from them. Pretty exciting stuff. You know, obviously disruptive technology and what you're doing with series tags, you need to, uh, and and in your past experience, um, you would have seen that some people adopt this technology faster than others. So adoption, um, you know, with technology can be a massive problem, and, and we see it in genetic. Um, solutions as well that um, there's some very very expensive research done on some products that you know unfortunately are sitting in closets and in universities not used because they've never been able to be made practical yeah adoption's a really interesting one I'm probably I'm probably I don't want to make it sound like it's a two-sided affair but I usually hear arguments about adoption in a two-sided way so from end users struggling with it or from technology providers, you know, saying there's not enough of adoption. And I think I'd have to say I'm sort of on the farmer's side if, if there was a side that had to be chosen. And largely, I, I think there's a couple of things working against adoption. And Australia is a, a great example. Okay, so we're, we fall behind the global average when it comes to adoption, when it comes to the amount we spend on agri-technology, um, and particularly on the amount that's injected uh, by the powers that be into kind of pushing adoption and building an ecosystem. So one of the things I do in my incredibly limited spare time is work with the Australian um, Agritech Association. So I'm on the board and and we're trying to work to build, you know, a more positive environment for agri-technology providers, for end users to adopt it and, and to drive the development of the agricultural sector as well. But I guess the two sides to that coin, some people argue that there's laggards, you know, or through that kind of diffusion of technology example, there's a whole bunch of producers who are laggards and don't want to adopt, and, and that's the problem. And the other side of that coin is we haven't been developing enough um, purpose-led agri-tech in Australia for adoption. So there needs to be, and I see this a lot in livestock, you know, you don't see it so much in broadacre horticulture and row cropping, but in livestock, we need those really high quality, um, you know, designed for a need or designed for a purpose technologies to come along so that people can adopt them. So they're irresistible. And, and they need, 
Yeah, and, and that, you know, they've got to be coupled with an appropriate business model as well. It's not just good enough to be technologically advanced, but offer a really poor experience commercially. So that's that's probably no mean feat for people either. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And, um, you know, uh, well, as as I said, mentioned with the genome, with the genetic um, analysis stuff, the, uh, I get frustrated with the lack of a duck. Even for our business, you know, if we had, if more of our competitors adopted um, um, genetic, um, quantitative genetic tools, we would be able to select more, we'd have more diversity in our selection um, for genetic gain. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm really keen to see more and more adoption because it'll make our business better and it'll make the Australian beef industry better. It'll make the products better too. You know, that feedback loop back to the technology providers, enabling them to continue yep. development, you know, release version two, continue to refine. It's kind of that virtuous cycle. And, you know, working from within the association, you know, we think there there will be a $100 billion agricultural sector in Australia, but we think there probably needs to be coupled with that in order to get there about a $20 billion a year. Uh, agri-tech sector that needs to develop and and they both rely intrinsically on the other to be successful because otherwise we're going to see great ideas that are developed in Australia initially just head offshore and then we'll be importing them at a cost uh, later on. So I feel really passionate about, you know, Australian developed technology in particular um, helping us all to be successful. So that's a segue into, so how do you see the future? There's technology that's being developed at the moment that once it's adopted is going to be a significant change. What other technologies are on the horizon, do you think, Lewis, that we're going to have to deal with? Or perhaps some the next generation could deal with them. I think I think we're going to see more things that are quite intangible and hard to wrestle with and can sort of conceptualise. So it's easy to talk about physical things. It's not easy, but, you know, it comes, it leaps into the front of your mind more when you think about some sort of physical technology we're going to deploy on farm, like, you know, cloning or some sort of wearable device or computer vision. I, I think we've still got a long way to go with computer vision, but yep. I'm convinced it's going to start to play an increasing role in, in the majority of, of agriculture industries, including across plants and animals. Um, I, th- I think it's going to be huge. And, th- you know, that includes satellite, not just... Um, local local cameras but i think we're going to wrestle more with sort of cloud level uh, infrastructure and uh, markets and trading platforms and you know i think blockchain starting to to find its niche within within agriculture and livestock and we're going to see more done with that so i think it's going to be more the distributed ledgers and the way we're actually operating as businesses is going to change you won't own a hundred head of cattle you'll own a thousand one hundredths of individual animals spread all across the country and across individual operations. And the, and the people, you know, the ranchers in America and the, the, the graziers in Australia will just become people who manage that market. And, and they look after the asset that is a, a tradable block. Um, you know, they're the types of things I think that could come along and really make an impact from a disruptive technology point. I think it goes without saying that Everything we have right now from from technology, everything you can imagine, that's just all going to continue to accelerate and get better. But when I try and think about what will truly be new, I I think we're going to have to look more at those, yeah, those cloud-level enterprises and things 
that fundamentally change the way we even own animals or, or operate a farming enterprise. Yeah, the pretty exciting stuff. I see, uh, you know, enrolments in ag courses in university and um, univers- and colleges like Marcus Oldham and even across in, in, in Britain, I know that um, the university places that were struggling um, 15 years ago are now absolutely full with agricultural students, partly because um, job prospects are so good, but also partly, I think, because of technology that's making ag a lot more sexy. Yeah, and I think I think we're doing a good job of getting that out there too. I think a lot of it, you know, when you look at the average age of a, a producer, whatever sector you're looking at in Australia, it's continuing to age. And I think a lot's being done by those individuals to try and raise the profile, to try and engage the next generation, you know, engage their own children in, in hey, you know, does someone want to come back and get involved in this business? Um, yeah. And at what point and what does that look like? You know, well, Dad, you know, heaps of things would need to change. Okay, well, like what? Let's let's have a conversation about it. And I think that the kind of this, you, you mentioned the word sexy. You know, I think I think ag is primary production and and being involved in the application of various technologies in primary production is a big attraction. And one thing I think COVID has made a lot of people reconsider, particularly people who live in cities when they were locked in their apartment or locked in their townhouse for God knows how long, over 200 days for the people in Melbourne, it probably, you know, I think a lot of people had the realisation, is this is this what I want from life? Not, not what I want from my job or, you know, what I want financially. Is this what I want from life, to, to be here? And if you ask those people that live in those cities their ultimate escapist fantasy, it's I want to be in the country, I want to be in the bush, you know, near a river or the ocean, or, you know, I'd love to work with my hands, do something outdoors. The opportunities are staring them in the face. And, and I think we're also getting a wave of um, really qualified people who had some other early career in some other field are now coming back to the farm and bringing those skills with them. It's pretty exciting times. And, and Lewis, um, it's great to have people like you that leading the way for us we're getting near the end of our podcast so i need to ask you about your three m's which we torture um each guest with um so what are the mistakes you've made so this was a really hard one to answer i made so many mistakes you think it'd be easy but when i had to think about it when you mentioned these i think i would reflect and say probably in my younger years i actually really struggled with trying a little too hard trying to do too much to too high higher standard and and getting upset when it didn't go 100% um, to plan. Mm-hmm. And and I guess the reason I'd reflect on that now is that I think in time I, I have learned to balance my efforts a little a little more. And someone once said to me, you know, if you struggle with perfectionism, just think if it's worth doing, it's it's worth doing badly. And I guess the adage there is, you know, badly is a qualitative term. It's you're probably still doing a really good job, but, yeah. you know, you're looking at progress and moving forward being more important than, you know, spending multiple days squeezing out the last few percentage points of, of quality. Well, that's an interesting one. <laughs> yeah, so what about your um, your masterpieces? Um, two things I'd call out on the masterpieces. One we've already touched on is being involved in some of those really early gene market tests in beef cattle. And there's so many bumps and scrapes and probably a heap of mistakes along the way. It was just... You know, I wouldn't be who I am without having had that experience. And and it introduced me, you know, officially 
to the industry of, of livestock production, and that's something I'll always be be grateful for. It's had a huge personal impact on me. That that's a professional one. Probably on a personal note, um, there's a ma- big masterpiece I think I achieved was was taking some time, and and you know sometimes to be a better farmer you need to to spend some time away from the farm. And there was a point in my life when I had an opportunity to um, quit work, and my wife and I headed off around the world for a year, just living out of a backpack. Um, and we spent some time engaged in our respective industries, but um, a lot of other times looking into other industries and in other areas around the world. And and that was really clarifying for me. It really helped me set a course for, you know, I don't know, the next 10 or 20 years of my life. And so mentors, Lewis. Uh, mentors. Okay, a couple of people. Dr. Jared Davis gave me my first job out of university when I was <laughs> throwing boxes of zucchini around at the Rockley markets at 2 a.m. in the morning um, <laughs> and gave me a start is something I'll, I'll never forget. Uh, Jason Strong, uh, at the same time, I was working with Jason as his, in his capacity as uh, director of sales in that business, and he taught me a lot about sales and, and connecting with your customer in the agricultural space, and, and that's always really stayed with me. So they're two professional ones. Um, on a personal note, a gentleman by the name of Pat Gunston, who I worked with at Allflex, um, and taught me things about work-life balance that I've, I've never forgotten and uh, stood me in, in really good stead. And, and even today, it's not just past people. Working with the founders of Sarah's Tag, Melita and David Smith, uh, teach me so much about what it takes to go from an idea and have the tenacity to take it all the way through to being a, a successful international organisation. Thank you, Lewis, for being on the Raw Ag podcast today. And um, it was great to catch up. I always enjoy having a chat with you because, um, uh, yeah, you leave me with lots of things to think about. So, And we haven't had a chance to do this much in the, in the recent couple of years. So thanks for coming on and um, best of luck with Series Tags. Thanks so much, Tom. It's been great. Well, I'm happy to catch up anytime. If you're enjoying the Raw Ag podcast, make sure you rate and review on your favourite podcast app.